For those visiting, and by way of reminder, we are looking at Psalm 130. We've been moving through these Psalms of Ascent, the section of the Bible. And one of the, the sort of controlling metaphors or images we have uh, as we've been exploring this question of what is the best way for you to understand your life? What is your life about? What is its purpose? All the things that you do, all the things that you might participate in or hope for, uh, all these things, what, what is the best way to understand what, it, what its purpose is, what it's for? And we've been saying over and over again that life is best understood and best lived as a pilgrimage. That is, it's not primarily about settling a certain place or settling a certain mindset or settling a certain tribe and then defending it against all attackers. That would be one way to think about life. Or it's not just about what you can acquire. It is about seeking another homeland, seeking a sacred destination and going on a journey of faith with God's pilgrim people, an intentional journey toward a sacred destination. And that sacred destination is something that we're all seeking. Some of us seek it in the gods of mammon or the gods of war or power or success or acclaim and esteem or intimacy. But we have been reminded again and again that we are best, we are living our best life if we live life as a pilgrimage Toward God himself. Toward what? Heaven? Yes. A new earth? Yes. God himself? Yes. Universal healing and flourishing? Yes. All of this is what the Bible calls shalom. Shalom. All things in harmony. The world, human beings, God himself working together in beautiful, flourishing harmony and love. This is what we are destined for, and this is what we are meant to set our minds on, set our hope on, to orient and give a trajectory to our life toward this shalom. And so I'll read it to you again, this psalm, because we sang a, a sort of paraphrase of it. This is Psalm 130. It's towards the end of the Song of Ascents. These songs given as a playlist for pilgrimage that... A few times each year, God's pilgrim people would leave their little homes and their tribes and their villages, and they'd make this arduous, long journey up the hill to the city of Shalom, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, where God dwelt in his temple, and all the people would come together and bring the gifts of their work week and of their world and their stewardship of the creation. And towards the end of these songs for the playlist, we have Psalm 130. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness, that you may be feared. I wait for the Lord. My soul waits. In his word, I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen for the morning, more than watchmen for the morning. Oh, Israel, hope in the Lord. For with the Lord, there is steadfast love. And with him is plentiful redemption. And he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. This is the word of the Lord. A psalm like this, a song like this for pilgrimage lands 
smack dab where it ought to, which is into our culture, into our lives, at a time in which we understand what it means to have a profound loss of hope. You probably don't need me to do the laundry list this morning of the institutions in our world in the West that we've lost hope in. We could start listing so many of them, right? We have this profound loss of hope, both culturally, politically, institutionally, in our relationships, in our families. We are more and more discouraged and insecure about the idea that we might actually make a good and lasting long life together here as individuals and as a community. We lose hope, if you are a Christian even, that this idea of shalom, this idea of God coming, his kingdom in heaven coming to earth, that that could even happen, that we could experience it all. We lose hope in this. One of our former members of this church co-wrote a book called How to Survive the Apocalypse. Zombies, Cylons, Faith, and Politics at the End of the World. That book is about uh, so many of the stories that we tell and why it's so popular in our books and movies to have dystopian stories and apocalyptic scenarios. We love them. We can't get enough of them. There's an explosion of apocalyptic stories that we tell one another and that we go to live out and to live into. The book begins with the sentence, the world is going to hell. And that begins to unpack all the ways what certain philosophers have called cultural liturgies. Okay, so we're doing a liturgy this morning. You're walking through uh, a script, if it will, a story, and you're rehearsing it together. Just so we reenact and rehearse apocalyptic stories together, cultural liturgies. We live them out. We go to the movies to see them. We read about them. We tell stories, and we begin to see them popping up in our news feeds. That all we see is these stories of the world is going to hell, and there's nothing that can save it. If you ask a child under 20, an ordinary child in the West, I would not be surprised because I've done it myself, and many times I hear, not only sirens in New York City, I hear from them that they have zero confidence that this planet will still be inhabitable by the time that they die. A genuine belief that the world is going to hell. It is going to end. We are going to do something to destroy the planet, the environment, or destroy one another through our war. And so together we are afraid. But the authors of this book point out that there's a a, a sort of new feature to our version of the apocalyptic stories. As people have been telling apocalyptic stories since as long as there have been people, you know, you've probably seen it all, the scares that the world's going to end and everyone does something crazy, a whole culture together thinks it's going to happen. Y2K was one of those, if you're old enough to remember that. But they argue that there's a new part of our story, and that is that there's a a bit of a, not a glee, but... uh, a sort of thread moving through these stories that is open, like an open vein, an open wound. And that is that we seem to now believe not only that the apocalypse might happen, or maybe we have these stories where there is a momentary apocalypse and some savior like a Superman comes and saves the day. Instead, we tell and seem to begin to relish the stories of apocalypse because we have this deep feeling that we deserve it. 
And that's the point of their book. They point out again and again through the Hunger Games and Mad Men and all these other stories that they look into that we seem to deeply believe that we kind of deserve what's coming for us. There's this paralyzing fear and shame and hopelessness about human beings. We think the forces of destruction and despair, despair and dismay are beyond our power to tame them. Sure, maybe we can settle Mars, but we probably won't. What we know we can't settle is our restless hearts. The flames that we don't be able to seem to put out, like wildfires, are our mutual hatred. We don't seem to have any capability to stop these forces beyond our control from being only extractive and destructive to the planet. And so we can fall into one of these two kind of spiritual ditches of, on the one hand, religious people who just say, well, that kind of stinks, but I've got heaven. I've got the next life, and I'm just I'm thinking about it all the time. You know, that whole thing, you've heard the phrase many times, I'm sure, that you're so heavenly-minded that you're of no earthly good. There's also an equal an opposite ditch that we can fall into, and that is to be so wrapped up in the wounds and the problems and the injustices of this world that we just begin to despair. All we can see is the hurt. We can't even move one step closer towards shalom because we're discouraged, we're hopeless. You're so in the wounds of the world that you can't look to something bigger than human beings and their failures or the problems in the world. That's more of the one that we're kind of looking into this morning. You might say, though, we'll dig into this in a minute, that this is the problem of being so earthly-minded that you're of no heavenly good. It's important to understand that you pray, and you'll pray it here in the service in a minute, that the Lord would have his kingdom that is in heaven come on earth, just like it is in heaven that it would be done here, that it's actually the marriage of heaven and earth that we are pilgriming, making pilgrimage toward. The marriage of heaven and earth. And so we need our eyes to be encouraged that there is more than just the wounds and the problems and the suffering. And this psalm lands into that problem. How do you keep going? How do you keep going when the journey has been so long? We're not even sure we believe in it anymore. Is it really around the bend? I don't know. It's been a long time. Are we there yet? Well, this psalm, if it's towards the end of the playlist, we've been moving through that God has for our journey. The people of God are almost, remember this was originally actual pilgrims going from their villages up to Jerusalem. You can imagine now they're somewhere near the city. They've come a long way. They've sung already 10 psalms for their journey. They're getting close, but they can't quite see it. It's not yet on the horizon. It's blocked a little from view and they begin to be aware of how tired they are of how thin they are running in their resources. Their provisions are getting low. Their courage is being discouraged. They are running out of steam, as it will. And how do you keep going? How do you have hope? The commentator and pastor, Eugene Peterson, on this topic and the psalm says, to be human is to be in trouble. Suffering is pain plus physical or emotional pain plus the awareness that our own worth as people is threatened. 
that our own value as creatures made in the dignity of God is called into question. That our own destiny as eternal souls is jeopardized. Think of that apocalypse again and how the shame that we have. It's like, oh, human beings almost deserve what's coming to them. We begin to feel that. We begin to think that. This is suffering, pain plus. We ask the question, Peterson says again, are we to be finally nothing? Are we to be discarded? Are we to be rejects in the universe and thrown onto the garbage dump of humanity because our bodies degenerate or our emotions malfunction or our minds become confused or our families find fault with us or society avoids us or any of these things or a combination of them or any of these things can put us in the state of one, Psalm 130 describes as in his translation, the bottom has fallen out of my life, out of the depths. From the pits of despair, I cry out to you. A Christian is a person who sees this, acknowledges this, and wants to know what to do in the pit of despair. What do you do with your deep suffering? And of course, some of that suffering I've, I've gave us a sort of more cultural and global setting for it. But of course, it includes just the intimate pain that you carry as a person. When you look in the mirror and you don't like what you see anymore... When you spend five minutes alone in quiet without a phone or any other distraction and you begin to feel melancholy and sad about who you are. When your sins seem to be all that you can see and your continual and repeated failures. What do we do? Well, God's given us this song. I'm just going to walk through it quickly. Verse by verse. This is how we gain hope in the middle of suffering. It's God's gift to us. We don't ignore it and just pine for heaven and we don't just focus only on our pain and forget that we are on pilgrimage. Instead, we are to take it to him and begin to say, out of the depths, acknowledgement, we are in the pit of despair. It is true. We've made a mess of, my, of your own life, of your relationships, of your friendships, of the planet, of the culture, sure. From the pits, we cry out to you, O Lord. We set this anguish out in the open. We voice it as a prayer to God. And we tell him, this is the truth about us. We are hurting, and yet we cry out to you. Not just to one another. Not just and only to the psychologists or to the social workers. Or to the institutions. Or to that friend that can hold my hand and tell me it's okay. I cry out to you, O oh Lord. I bring this despair to you. And this is important that we live in a time where, I mean, I'm, I'm, the, first, I'm the chief of sinners with this, which is like seeing all the wellness and, and well-being sort of articles that come through my Apple News and I just get hooked on them. What new hack I can do to try to get in better shape or to have less anxiety or to whatever it may be, you know, have a rich full life. In this culture, it's difficult to be a person to stand there and just say, I am in the pits. I am struggling. I get overwhelmed at the world sometimes. But the psalm says, as people together, to say we cry out to you, O Lord, to acknowledge it. And this cry has to have this upward focus to it. Not just crying to one another, but crying out to the Lord. Franz Kafka wrote that the problem with modern people is that we still know what it feels like to feel like sinners. And yet we've lost the concept 
of guilt. This idea that there is anything objective by which we might measure our lives. Instead, it's just a collection of articles that you can choose or not choose to follow. You can have your own personal little hack of the good life. And it can look different from someone else's. But know that there is this objective standard we are moving to. There is a shalom. As Jesus says, he will come back with the glory of his father. And he will judge what everyone has done in their lives. And say that is right. That was fully right. That was partially right. That was wrong entirely. So we cry out to this one, the one who actually knows what truth and justice and beauty and glory is. When we sense that something is amiss in our lives, that something is wrong, to bring it to this God. To understand that there is this sense of guilt, not just shame that we don't know how to deal with, but guilt. Guilt that there is something wrong. There is injustice. When this or that person does this thing in the culture and hurts all these people, that is wrong. And just full out be able to say it. And the Lord will come to deal with it. He will come to make all things right. If you could hear Andrea earlier when she was talking, I couldn't really hear back here uh, with no monitor. But if you could hear her, she also read from Romans. And it says this very thing, take no vengeance. The Lord himself will come and take care of everything. This is something to look forward to. When you're under the boot of oppression and injustice, or even just caught in the cog of a machine that is bigger than anything you can do to fix. Oh Lord, we cry out to you. Oh Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears pay attention to the voice of my pleas for mercy. If you, oh Lord, should mark iniquities, oh Lord, who could stand? The idea here is both personal and corporate. Let your ears hear my cry out. My cry for mercy, for deliverance, for being saved, for being helped, for being plucked out of the pit, for being encouraged to move on. If you, Lord, should mark iniquities, who could even stand up, much less walk toward you? And it's interesting that the translation here, mark iniquities, the word there is actually the same used in a moment for watchmen keeping watch. If you, O Lord, should be like the person up there on the tower of Jerusalem, looking and scowling and paying attention to all of my failures, nobody could even stand before you for a minute. If you were keeping watch, if you were paying attention to, if you were just looking out there and seeing, look how terrible all those people are. Look what they've done. Look at the mess they made. If that's what you were paying attention to all the time is the record of wrongs. If you just, man, I can't wait to get them back for that. I just can't wait for the moment to come. I'm just so focused on all that they've done wrong. Oh Lord, who could stand? If you were watching and staring at and paying attention to all that has gone wrong. Oh Lord, we have no hope. We have no hope. But, verse 4 says, but, that ain't the case, the psalmist says. That is not the kind of watchman we have watching and waiting for us. That is not the kind of God we are on pilgrimage toward. Instead, he's not just keeping a record of wrongs and paying attention to us and all that we do wrong and paying attention to all that's done wrong. He acknowledges it. He sees it clearly. He's going to fix it. But in the meantime, he sent his son to do what? Jesus told you in the gospel this morning. You want me to just take up glory? Baptize things as they are? No way. I'm going to suffer and to serve and to die. 
If you're not on board with that, get behind me. You might as well be Satan. We are going out from Shalom into that broken world to take all of the sin and shame and sorrow and hurt on this planet into his own life, into his own skin. And by his stripes, we are healed. For him to practice solidarity with you and me out there on the road, in the ditch, one side or the other, to pick us up, to pluck us out and to say, come with me. Now we're going to carry our cross back up to Shalom. And this cross will become the means of victory and healing for the world. With you, there is forgiveness. With you, there is forgiveness. That's what you're focused on, God. You're not focused on my record of wrongs. You've taken that record. You've nailed it to the cross and you are focused on our restoration. You are focused on how much you love to forgive. And you do all these things so that we may fear you, to live our lives orchestrated underneath you and with you, to ask you what pleases you, how to make it one step closer to you today, to be near you, that you may be feared. And forgiveness, I know it sounds trite, it sounds so silly, but I tell you, I had this conversation with one of my children yesterday. We've taught our kids, I keep adding to the list, but it's pretty much true, that there's like three or four things we taught them since they could speak in our house. You must say, I love you. You must say, thank you. You must learn to say, I'm sorry. And you must learn to say, I forgive you. And of course, sorry and forgive you. There's plenty of opportunity for those in the life of a family of six, right? I'm sorry, I forgive you. And some of them have experienced now being around other kids from other families especially ones that didn't grow up in any kind of religious tradition, that it seems impossible and counterintuitive and not at all normal for people to say, I'm sorry. And because they can't say, I'm sorry, they can't acknowledge their wrongdoings because they're afraid they might get zapped or whatever. They don't ever experience forgiveness. But forgiveness is what cleanses our hearts and souls and minds and lives and our relationships and what makes it new. It's better than any juice cleanse, right? Any medicine, any tonic. It's restorative and healing. And when you begin to experience this, you want it for everyone else too. And so verses five and six, I wait. What am I waiting for? What is my hope set on? If your hope is set on your financial security, then your sense of anxiety or security is just gonna ebb and flow with the stock market or your 401k. If it's set on your children, then when they're all happy and calling you blessed, then that's good. Yeah. Woo-hoo, yeah. And when they're not, you're going to be in the pit of despair. And we could fill in the blank. When you set your hope on anything other than the Lord himself, who's focused on your forgiveness and healing and restoration, then we will be disappointed. And so we ask him again now. We bring our suffering to you. We're honest about it. We acknowledge it. We experience this forgiveness. And so I, again, wait for what? Wait for the stock market? Wait for he or she to say, I do too? Wait to finally be able to be financially independent and retire early? No. I wait for the Lord. My soul waits. It's kind of like, The psalmist wants us to convince ourselves, right? I wait for the Lord. My soul waits. 
in his word. In this case, it means his promise. In his promise, I hope. I'm placing my hope on his promise that he is that kind of Jesus that came to be with us, that he is the one leading the pilgrimage to the city of Shalom, that he is the one bringing heaven to earth. I wait for him. That's what my soul is longing for and waiting for and hoping for and his promise coming true. In fact, my soul waits for the Lord. More than those watchmen up on the towers of the city wait for the morning. More than they watch for the morning. I want my soul to watch and wait for the Lord. I love this. You have these watchmen up on the city. What are they doing at night? Some people are sleeping. Some people have night jobs and they're out doing their business in the quiet in the city. Somewhere there are children who are restless and can't sleep. And these watchmen are on the towers making sure nothing sneaks in at night to harm this place that will soon be the place of shalom and festival. And they're watching for the morning. And what they're watching and waiting for is to see on the horizon the sun come up and underneath this sun to see the pilgrim people coming up to the city of God. They're watching and they're waiting for this. They can't wait. They've got everything prepared. They're watching for all the tribes from all directions to come up and to celebrate this great feast and festival together. This is what their eyes are focused on. You might say them as the eyes of God from the temple are waiting and watching for the people to flow in. And just like they're watching for me, just like God is watching, not my mistakes, but my pilgrimage and my future flourishing. As he is paying attention to that, I want my heart and my soul to pay attention to this Lord. I want to wait and watch for him more than anything in this world, more than watchmen wait for the morning and the people of God. This is Eugene Peterson again. He says, a watchman is an important person, but he doesn't do very much. The massive turning of the earth, the immense energies released by the sun, all that goes on quite apart from the work of the watchman. His main job is just to be there, alert to dangers, and to comfort restless children until it is time for the light of day to come again. For the Christian then, he says, waiting and watching, that is hoping, it's based on the conviction that God is actively involved in his creation today, friends, and vigorously at work in redemption. Hoping does not mean doing nothing. It is not fatalistic resignation it means going about our assigned tasks. Yes, those tasks, whether they be in the economic field, uh, environment and field, whether they be in the environment itself, whether it be in politics, whether it be in work, whether it be in relationships or schools. We go about our assigned tasks confident, not that our work will get it all fixed, but that God will provide the meaning and the conclusions. It is not compelled to work away at keeping up appearances with a bogus spirituality. It's the opposite of desperate and panicky manipulations, of scurrying and worrying. And hoping is not dreaming either. It's not spinning an illusion or a fantasy to protect us from boredom or pain. It is, and I love the way he puts this, it is imagination. Like watching a movie and imagining a whole other world. It is imagination put in the harness 
of faith, a willingness to let God do it his way and in his time. It's the opposite of making plans that we demand that, could, that God put into effect, telling him how and when to do it. Waiting and watching is active, but it's knowing who has the power. It's knowing who has the power so we don't merely blame shift or point fingers or give up in despair, but we hope and trust and believe that he is coming. And so it concludes, O Israel, hope in the Lord. With the Lord there is steadfast love, love that will never fail. And with him is plentiful redemption. He will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. Now it's corporate. He's going to redeem the people of God from all of their iniquities and sins and failures and problems. He's going to make it all right. And he's going to come and fix the whole world. Wipe every tear and fix everything. He's faithful. He will do it. It's what they call, the psalmist calls plentiful redemption. We have forgiveness now, but then we will have plentiful redemption, full redemption, the whole thing. And so I just want to do two points of short application. Individually and personally, I think it's important to recover what we just might call a real and earnest, inward and honest piety. The sense that no matter how busy we are, or how much bills are piling up, or how much the rent is too darn high, or all the things, that we always have the Lord himself, by the power of his Holy Spirit, living inside of you paying attention to you, waiting for you, walking with you, seeing your suffering. He's with you in the pit and he's with you at the peak. An old catechism, a beloved one, which is a question and answer sort of uh, strategy, an old catechism called the Heidelberg Catechism begins with this. The very first question that you're to teach children and adult converts to memorize. What is your only comfort or hope in life and in death? And the answer that we are to give is this. My only hope and comfort in life and in death is that I am not my own. I belong body and soul in life and in death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He's fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood. He set me free from the tyranny of the devil. He also watches over me in such a way that not a hair can fall from my head without the will of my Father in heaven. In fact, all things must work together for my salvation because I belong to him. Christ, by his Holy Spirit, assures me of eternal life and makes me wholeheartedly willing and ready from now on to live for him. It's a beautiful answer. It also reminds you that they used to have a longer attention span than we do today. I'm supposed to memorize that, the first question. Or as the book of Romans puts it, none of us lives to himself, none of us dies to himself. If we live, we live to the Lord. If we die, we die to the Lord. So then whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. This is to be your hope and your comfort as individuals. And then corporately, each week as we're doing here and in our conversations and in our activities out with our neighbors, in a hopeless world, in a world that thinks we got hell coming and we deserve it kind of, to walk out as people of hope that acknowledge the brokenness. Don't numb it or hide it or blame it on some other group of people, but acknowledge that we are a part of it. And yet there is hope that there is one who is actively redeeming us and bringing us to shalom, that we will be in his presence and it will be a beatific vision full of bliss and joy. 
and endless satisfaction. And so now we can be people that are forgiven and also have hope. Can you imagine what this might do to our social imagination? That there are people that carry themselves with hope and take another step forward rather than stoking fear. They stoke hope in the world. Their eyes seem to see everything and yet it seems that they see something a little higher on the horizon. Something a little bit bigger and more majestic and more beautiful than we would ever ask or imagine for ourselves. Or we would ever think we deserve. What dignity they think God is going to dis- uh, give to us. And we are waiting and watching and longing and hoping for this. As we approach Shalom, we know that we are being watched over. We are being waited for. A table and a room to sleep in even now is being prepared for us. Like those watchmen, we trust that the Lord is leading us, that he has people watching out for us, that he is watching out for us and our future of flourishing. This is our hope in life and in death as a people, that God is coming. He is bringing with us, with him, his shalom, and he is walking us into it. We will finally and fully see his apocalypse, his revelation, and it will be a beautiful thing. It will be more than we've ever asked for and waited for. This is your hope, beloved of God, this morning again. Hope in the Lord and wait and watch for him to come to you. He will do it. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Mm-hmm.